Let me guess. You're playing your ball out of the wrong fairway again. Stop yelling for right after every shot and start playing the new Big Bertha B21 from Callaway. Because truth is, there's a ton of distance trapped inside your swing. You just need the technology of Big Bertha to unlock it. It's pretty simple. A straighter ball equals a longer ball. So Callaway built a whole family of Big Bertha drivers, irons, woods, and hybrids with a new formula for forgiveness. Big Bertha was designed to reduce side spin while generating an insane amount of ball speed, leading to straighter shots off the tee. That's how you unleash your inner distance. And Callaway made Big Bertha irons so forgiving you can practically hit them anywhere on the face and the ball just launches. No matter your swing, Big Bertha gives every shot more distance. Big Bertha is a full family of long, forgiving, and really easy-to-hit clubs. Say hello to the fairway again. Introduce yourself to the green, because this is distance any way you swing it. Unlock your inner distance today at callawaygolf.ca slash Big Bertha. Floating amid the 2020 U.S. presidential election is a conspiracy theory that Donald Trump is the only one who can stop a cabal of Satanists who are molesting and trafficking in children. While unique in its details, QAnon shares DNA with childhood allegations of ritual sexual abuse unearthed in a 1980 book by a Victoria woman and her psychiatrist. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I talk with freelance writer Jen Gerson about her piece for capnews.ca about what led to the satanic panic conspiracy, why it has spread so easily, and what we've learned that can help combat conspiracies like QAnon. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Jen, as we're in the middle of an election campaign in the United States revolving around a very controversial figure, Donald Trump, he has been linked or mentioned prominently in a pretty bizarre conspiracy theory known as QAnon or tied to a figure known as Q. Because this is kind of relates to what we're going to talk about in a second, can you just kind of outline what QAnon is? So with the caveat that I am not actually an expert in the QAnon conspiracy, the general gist of this goes is that in about 2017, this mysterious figure named Q made this fairly obscure prediction about Hillary Clinton about to get arrested on an image board called 4chan. And since then, this Q figure, and Q, by the way, is is a reference to a certain level of security clearance in the United States. Well, this Q figure started dropping more and more of these predictions, hints, claims about what was going on at the deepest levels of the United States government. And that ultimately, over time, this evolved into this wide-ranging conspiracy theory where the deep state is out to undermine Donald Trump, who is you know, a secret crusader trying to put an end to this underground satanic cabal of pedophiles who are trafficking in child sex slaves. Gotcha. Well, some people might think, well, oh, that's you know a scary new idea that there's this cabal of people exploiting children. This isn't really a new idea that people are paranoid about some group of people abusing and trafficking in children isn't new. No, this has evolved over the time. I mean, you can actually trace elements of what we will call the satanic panic, which is that, you know, essentially there is 
a group of highly powerful individuals, largely men, who are kidnapping and molesting children in order to engage in satanic rituals or satanic orgies. Some variant of that conspiracy, you can trace it actually back to the 17th century. Mm-hmm. The first sort of example of this was, uh, I think, in 1682, there was something called the Affair of the Poisons in the court of uh, the Sun King, Louis Sixteenth, I believe, who got engaged in this massive court conspiracy where one of his prime mistresses, when he started to turn against her, went to one of the local witches and started to procure poisons, essentially. And when this whole conspiracy came out, it was alleged that this witch was engaging in black masses with like walls that were covered in black and candles made with human fat. And she was also, as many sort of sorceresses type women were at this time, she was also um, a noted abortionist. So she was using fetal tissues in her rituals and all that kind of stuff. So that's the first time you can trace the satanic panic to sort of an element of a cohesive conspiracy. Yeah, And of course, from there... You know, how much of this actually happened and how much of this was, you know, fantasy is impossible to tear apart now. We can safely assume that a lot of it was a moral panic of the time. Over time, of course, this idea that people in power are engaging in these horrific Satan worshipping type, deeply immoral acts just kind of got embedded in the culture. And of course, you start to see this pop up in fiction. Mm-hmm. There was an author by the name of Husemans who wrote a, a book called La Basse in the, the 19th century that starts to elucidate the details of a black mass ritual. And ironically, you know, when the Church of Satan started up in 1966, and that's a whole other side conversation, the leader of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, ironically grabbed from La Basse in order to try and draw out and create his own set of rituals for the Church of Satan to follow as well. So like, that's how you kind of follow the thread. Yeah. To the 1980s and 1990s. You know, throughout the 60s and 70s, you have an enormous amount of social upheaval. There was a lot of stuff in pop culture about Satanism and Satanic practices. Rosemary's Baby was one of the seminal movies at this time. You had the rise of the Church of Satan and Anton LaVey in 1966. And if he was an absolute media hound, like he would frequently do these high profile television shows wearing you know, capes and horns and all kinds of stuff like that. The idea of Satanism, the idea of, of these dark, nefarious elements was very wound into the pop culture at the time. And in the 70s, that's when you get someone by the name of Michelle Proby starting to undergo therapy sessions with a Victoria-based psychiatrist named Lawrence Pazder. Who was Michelle Proby and why was she seeking therapy from this psychiatrist in Victoria? Michelle Proby was just, you know, a pretty ordinary housewife who was living in Victoria in British Columbia throughout the 70s. And she originally started going to a psychiatrist, a very well-respected, very well-credentialed psychiatrist by the name of Lawrence Pazder in the mid-70s to deal with depression issues. And she didn't have a great childhood, but, you know, an ordinarily not great childhood. You know what I mean? Like slightly distant parents, that kind of stuff. And so she was dealing with depression and she had been undergoing fairly conventional treatment for that with Pazder for a couple of years when it kind of came clear that she had more or less resolved her issues. Things were on track for her until this terrible thing happened to her. And that was she had a miscarriage. And she was very distraught by this miscarriage, was in hospital. And something about being in the hospital allegedly triggered some horrible flashback or response. She had a dream of scratching her skin and having spiders come out of her limbs. And she went back to Lawrence Pazder and said, oh, God, this is something, something terrible is going on. I don't know what's going on. At this point, they start to engage in what I would call kind of an experimental type of therapy for dealing with repressed or believed to be repressed trauma. 
you know, Pazder claimed that it wasn't hypnosis, but it sounds an awful lot like hypnosis, where she goes further and further into her memories to unveil these previously repressed recollections of her time with essentially a Victoria-based satanic cult. And at first, the recollections start kind of creepy and weird, but not paranormal. Mm -hmm. But over the course of, I think it was about 14 months and 600 hours of this intensive, intensive emotional therapy, her claims start to get more and more outlandish and supernatural. Till by the end, she's claiming that as a child, she saw Mary and Jesus essentially intervene on her behalf uh, in the midst of this extraordinarily intricate satanic ritual in which Victoria-based Satanists were trying to call or conjure the devil. That's pretty out there and pretty outlandish. How do these allegations of ritual abuse evolve? And what kind of allegations was she making over time? And how did this all become public? Lawrence Pazder and Michelle Proby write a book about this called Michelle Remembers, in which they detail this entire journey. It's a very difficult to read book, not only because the allegations are quite gross, but all the classic elements of this are dead babies getting locked in cages. There's intimations of sexual abuse here. It's awful to read, but it's also just hard to follow. Keep in mind, this is a now a 20-something-year-old Michelle Proby undergoing this hypnotic state to then recount the memories that she had as like a five-year-old girl mm -hmm. in the voice of a five-year-old girl. So it's pretty wild. It's very clear that Pazder thinks that this is his career-defining case, and he gets all excited about it. They write a book together and essentially begin touring this book. They also sort of bring in their local Catholic diocese to come in and, you know, pray over Michelle. They get the bishop involved, Bishop Remy Duru, who actually, you know, takes them to the Vatican at one point to have their claims assessed. The book is written in such a way that it kind of convinces you that there might be something to it. It's a very convincing book. Pazder doesn't come off as crazy. Michelle doesn't come off as crazy. They seem like they're both really reasonable people. They go into the book trying to document whatever proof is possible from their claims. It's only when you sort of step away from the book and the narrative that you realize, like, wait a minute, th these claims are nuts. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, like, this doesn't add up within the book. It also sort of takes a minute for you to step away when you realize that the relationship that's growing between Pazder and Proby would be, at least by modern standards, be considered really inappropriate. And in fact, both of them left their respective spouses and wound up marrying one another. So a mm -hmm. lot of the motivation for undergoing these intense hypnotic sessions was firstly to spend time with one another in this emotionally intense and intimate space. But also, uh, I think that one of the subconscious motivations for Michelle's rememberings is that she was remembering things that just happened to confirm and align with Dr. Pazder's very devoutly held religious Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So by the end, when she's recounting Mary and Jesus, you know, this is more than just a crazy claim. This is, if credible, you know, a confirmation of all of Dr. Pazder's religious beliefs as well. So it's pretty understandable how this dynamic formed between them and became as wild as it did. The book itself really should have gone nowhere. If we were living in an era in which a proper degree of skepticism were applied, the book just would have been a little paperback thriller that would have been rapidly discarded. But because it came out in the moment that it did, it wound up being a kind of template for hundreds, if not thousands of claims of repressed memory across the world. It almost operates in the form of an urban legend. How do we go from this book getting published to the idea that it created a wave of panic or helped at least spread the idea of 
satanic ritual abuse of kids. I think that, honestly, if this book hadn't been published, it probably would have been another book like it that would have done the same thing. I think that the culture was primed for this kind of a thing, and the book just happened to fall into the lap of the culture at a moment when it was most likely to go viral. It's like memes. It's like in the same way that we would think about urban legends spreading across the continent. I mean, we all know the urban legend of the crazy person who escapes from the asylum and is hitchhiking and then kills. We've all heard these stories that happened to a friend of a friend. This book became essentially the template for the urban legend of satanic ritual Mm -hmm. And what started to happen is by the early 80s, like really only within three years of it being published, you started to get these cases popping up all around North America of ordinary women just dealing with regular problems, going to their psychiatrists. The psychiatrist usually has done some kind of workshop in their professional lives dealing with repressed memory or how to do, use hypnosis to uncover repressed memory. So they say, well, here, let's just try to engage in hypnosis and see if, if that explains your problems. And they do so. And lo and behold, these sorts of cases uncover these long repressed memories. Of course, that's not how memory works, yeah. right? Like we know now with the benefit of hindsight that if you hypnotize certain people, particularly people who are prone to dissociative states, and you put them in these really intense emotional situations, essentially what winds up happening is that they start to create fantasies that become indistinguishable from memory in line with what they think their psychiatrist is trying to get out of them. And this is all done at a really deep subconscious level. But we have records of this dynamic happening between patient and doctor going right back to Sigmund Freud. This is a well-documented phenomenon. We just don't entirely understand why it happens. But essentially what it winds up happening is that you're implanting false memories in people's heads that they then can't distinguish between real and false. So it becomes enormously imperative for people who are investigating these claims that are, are uncovered through this technique to make sure that there is actual physical evidence trying to corroborate some of it. In Michelle's case, there really was not only was there no physical evidence to corroborate any of her claims, but really simple stuff like in the book, she claims that Satanists had kidnapped her for 80 days in order to conduct this enormous ritual. But there's no evidence of her being absent for school for any length of time. Mm -hmm. There's no medical evidence of all this. Like she claims, for example, that the Satanists did something to her teeth. And as proof in the book, she pulls out this letter from a dentist that noticed there was a childhood bang of her tooth. Like, that doesn't demonstrate anything. She claims that the Satanists literally sewed horns onto her head and a tail onto her. There's no medical evidence. Like, that's crazy. It's claim after claim, right? But when it all kind of comes together, it presents this compelling little template that then gets repeated over and over. And, and it gets repeated by people even who've never read the book, because that's how folklore and urban legends spread. It then takes another weird twist. Now, remember in the 1980s, this is when a lot of women were starting to head back to the workforce. Yeah. And of course, how they were managing that is that they were sending their kids into daycare en masse for the first time. And this was creating a whole conservative backlash. Women who did this were declared unwomanly, bad mothers. It created an enormous culture of guilt for women who tried to have families and work at the same time because this was a fairly novel thing to do. And of course, a satanic allegation like this then landed in that little miasma of cultural guilt, and then transformed into what we call the daycare cases. The daycare cases are really interesting because they're cases of just allegations of molestation 
that then sort of metastasized throughout these specific daycares. There was a really remarkable case in Martinsville, Saskatchewan, where you had sort of an allegation of molestation that then somehow became this widespread conspiracy of dozens and dozens of children making allegations that, you know, they were abused in satanic rituals. Very gory, very, very weird type of cases. The Montgomery preschool case in Manhattan Beach, California, was a, a really clear example of this. The, the kids were claiming that they were being taken all around the city for sexual abuse through underground tunnels, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. Then you you start to ask yourself, well, how could so many children make that sort of thing up? In my piece that I wrote for the Capital News, I sort of try to explain exactly how that can happen. Many children have struggled to distinguish fantasy from reality. And there were very, very clear mistakes that investigators made in those cases, which, by the way, from those mistakes, we've radically changed the way that we interview children because we recognize that there were extraordinary errors that led to huge procedural problems with these cases. One of the big problems, for example, was um, cross-contamination. So one kid in the McMartin daycare case made an allegation and the police responded by sending out a letter to all of the parents in that daycare saying, we've had one case of allegations. Please, you know, talk to your children and make sure that they haven't been molested. It was a very graphic, very inflammatory letter at the time. But the parents, of course, responded to this by freaking out. And then they asked their kids. Right. And then you can just sort of see how this happens. Then one child gets taken in for these interviews. The interviews themselves then use extremely leading techniques. Essentially, they're coaxing these children by saying, well, well, you're stupid if you don't tell me the truth. They were extremely emotionally manipulative techniques to get these children to, quote unquote, confess to what they had been through. And then, of course, the kids would go home, say what that had happened. And then the parents would call other parents and say, oh, my little Johnny got molested, blah, 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 blah. That would inspire panic in the other parents who would then interrogate their kids. And you can just see how this thing rapidly gets out of control. The McMartin daycare case was probably the most famous because they spent seven years and millions of dollars investigating it. It was probably, I think, one of the most expensive court cases to date. And essentially, it secured no convictions because the entire thing just collapsed on any kind of attempt to corroborate or find physical evidence for any of these claims. And we're talking about really serious crimes here that anytime you talk about someone abusing or interfering with children, it becomes a black mark on them personally. What kind of damage did all of this do to people? Did people go to jail only to get released and then have to live this down? Were children taken away from their parents? Yeah, all those things happened. So children were taken away from their parents in the UK. There were several cases because, of course, a lot of these social workers in the UK got very wrapped up in this conspiracy after sort of workshops and professional workshops. So there was a couple of famous cases in the UK where they then had to apologize and compensate the children victims because they were separated from their parents for so long. I think numerous people spent years in jail. I think there's actually still one case of somebody who's in jail from the panic to this day. And also some of this gets a little messy because there was an element of satanic panic that created a procedural nightmare for the these cases, but some of them might actually have been rooted in cases of legitimate molestation. Mm -hmm. So that's where this starts to get really murky as well. This tore families apart. There were cases of young girls who started to make claims against their fathers when there was really no evidence of any of this whatsoever and just totally, totally destroyed families. There were dozens, dozens and dozens of cases and lives that were very permanently and very seriously affected. I mean, the CBC actually did a great podcast that they talked to one of the children coming out of one of these daycare cases in Australia. And like she struggles with what the truth is even to this day. Right? And I mean, yeah. like it's an extraordinary thing of gaslighting if you're a child and you've gone through something like this to know what the truth is as an adult. Right. Because maybe you have memories of this. Maybe you don't. What memories of them are real? What memories of them aren't? It's an extraordinarily difficult thing to come to grips with. How do we guard against the idea that 
there are legitimate cases of abuse from people in positions of authority over kids. You and I both work in media. We've seen reports of charges of molestation out of day homes. Obviously, in your piece, you point out the fact that the Catholic Church has been um, a it big wasn't the perpetrator. It was the, it was the Catholics <laughs> who were doing this. Like, what is the guard against dismissing allegations that kids make out of hand for fear that you might be stoking another satanic panic conspiracy or just you may be worried that you may be falling for false allegations. Yeah, this is where it gets really tricky because, of course, there absolutely are cases of child sex trafficking rings. There are cases of powerful men who traffic in children. We saw that with Jeffrey Epstein. Even down in the 80s, there were a couple of cases of teenagers who killed their peers to worship Satan. Of course, the terrible irony of that one is that it was a sort of a teenage response to the satanic panic. It wasn't actually the cause of the satanic panic. Mm-hmm. There are people who worship Satan. There is a church of Satan. You can go to their website. So there, all of these things exist. The problem is that when you try to take these extremely isolated examples and use them to create an organizational framework by which you see the world, that's when you're likely to go off the rails. And the problem with that is that we do that all the time. That's a fundamental human trait. We are constantly taking these little data points in our lives and using them to understand the world around us. It's how our brains function and work, which makes our brains extremely susceptible to conspiracy theories. And here's one thing that I found very frustrating when we talk about conspiracy theories is that people always assume that conspiracy theories are things that other people do. It's really easy for us to go back with 40 years hindsight and be like, yeah, that satanic panic was crazy. But I'm willing to bet that you have beliefs that fit the motif of a conspiracy theory. I do. Like, we all do this. The psychological mechanisms that allowed this particular moral panic to take off 40 years ago still operate in society today. How do we deal with that when we're kind of in the middle of a conspiracy and one that is actually being not touted, but acknowledged by the president who's running for re-election. Like, obviously, we can draw a line between satanic panic and QAnon, even if one didn't necessarily inspire the other. They share similar themes. But how do we manage that while we're in the middle of people feeding into and believing a conspiracy? Really, really hard. So there's one of the reasons why the satanic panic took off and became as damaging as it did was that it actually co-opted or captivated mainstream institutions. The media or significant chunk of the media bought into the satanic panic. It was Geraldo and Oprah did shows on it at face value. Social work, psychology, parts of academia bought into repressed memory theory. Without that, you couldn't have done it. Law enforcement bought into it. A conspiracy theory that doesn't cross the divide into captivating mainstream institutions usually just stays a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. 9-11 trutherism never really got off the ground because nobody who was credible actually bought into it. It just never really got traction. There's still an underground of people who believe that you know 9-11 was an inside job, but that kind of petered out. QAnon is concerning because there are now mainstream elements that are buying into it. You know, there's at least one person who, a believer, just won a a House primary in Georgia, I believe. Yeah. I don't know if Donald Trump's come right out and said it, but his phraseology is pretty clear that he's trying to wink at some of these guys, right? So that's concerning. To some extent, QAnon, how much more mainstream can it go? I think that you will have some fringe candidates buy into it. You might have a handful of people in the House or, or the Senate. That would be scary enough. 
because people in that kind of position could institute a kind of, I think that would be less satanic panic, more red scare, Mm -hmm. more like the McCarthyist stuff. I think that that is a risk. Beyond that, I don't see QAnon captivating mainstream institutions in the same way that the satanic panic did. So I think that you're going to wind up with a pretty fringe movement that begins to peter out after Trump loses to Biden, presuming he does. If Trump doesn't lose to Biden, then this could be elevated into more of a a state-sanctioned conspiracy theory. And we've seen that in a lot of authoritarian states where they use conspiracy theories as a kind of loyalty test. Believe in the unbelievable to show how much you are loyal to the current regime. I think QAnon could be used in that way, but I think that we're a long way out from it just yet. Bizarre times and definitely a strange and fascinating story that's up at capnews.ca. Jen, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Jen Gerson is the co-founder of The Line. You can find more from her at theline.substack.com. She's also the co-host of the Oppo podcast. You can find that wherever you find this show. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.